Okay, good morning. I'm glad we have the opportunity to continue our uh, study of Amuna. And uh, we last met, we were working our way through a piece in the Alei Shore of Revolbi. Revolbi is uh, the great Mashkiach of Yerushalayim. I've told you a little bit about him and his wonderful work, Alei Shore. So if you remember, we last met, we were speaking about what Revolbi thinks is the greatest exercise. If Amuna is a muscle then it needs to be worked out. This is not his metaphor, it's mine. But if moon is a muscle, you need to work the muscle, challenge the muscle to make it grow. And if you don't, the result is not that it remains stagnant, the result is that it atrophies, that it dies. So you're either living life with Amuna, you're seeing Hashem in everything you do, you're feeling His guiding hand on your shoulder, or you're living a life without Hashem. But it's hard to remain where you were. Um, you know, they say that you're either... In theory, there are three possibilities. You can be an atheist, you can be a believer, or you can be an agnostic. In theory, you can either live life, you're a believer, God exists, He created the world, He's involved in your life. Or you're an atheist, you're absolutely certain there is no God, everything is random and chance, and so on. Or there's a third category in philosophy, and that's the agnostic, who hedges their bet and says, I'm not sure. I'm not absolutely unconvinced, but I'm also not convinced. So that's true in theory, there's three. But in practice, in reality, there's only two choices. Because you're either leading your life with the assumption God exists, or you're leading your life with the assumption He doesn't. There is no agnostic lifestyle. (laughs) Your lifestyle will either be consistent with being a believer or an atheist. So while you can be an agnostic in theory, in practice, you can't hedge. In practice, you can't be on the fence. In practice, it's one direction or, or the other. So that's why we get together on Wednesday mornings to exercise in a um, exercise our emuna muscle and to, uh, to try to make it grow. And so Revolba said, what's the greatest way to do that? If you remember, we talked about imagination, imagery, vision, right? the whole notion that you picture. And we talked about just like in sports, professional sports, in life, you try to picture, you try to see yourself doing something and then you have a greater likelihood of succeeding. There is an imagery in seeing Hashem. So remember we talked about last time, Picture yourself standing at Har Sinai. Picture yourself there for Kriyas Yamsif, the splitting of the sea. Picture yourself witnessing the Makos. Picture yourself <clears throat> seeing the victory of Israel in the Six-Day War. Picture, and through imagery, one can increase emuna. Okay, so that brings us up to the second page, where you see the three stars. If you're listening online, we'll try to put the source sheets up as well. <clears throat> and Revolba continues here, Hanichnas. You see where we are? Hanichnas la'omkam shel hadvarim. A person who enters the depth, the profundity of these things, like we were saying, emuna is all-encompassing. You can't be half-pregnant. And you can't be half-married. If you're married, you're married. If you have fidelity and loyalty and the bond of marriage, then you have fidelity and loyalty and the bond of marriage. Your marriage doesn't take a break when you go on vacation. Your marriage doesn't take a break when you go on a business trip. Your marriage doesn't take a break because you've decided you need a day off or a hall pass or whatever you want to call it. Marriage is marriage. It's 24-7 for the rest of your life, for the rest of your marriage. That's that level of commitment. If a woman is pregnant, she's pregnant. You're not half pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. And what Revolve is describing is that Amuna, true Amuna, if you realize the profundity of Amuna, it's the same thing. You can't be a Maimon you don't have a moon when you dive and you're really into it, but then you went to work. And now God's not part of the picture, so you cut corners and you twist and you're, you're manipulative and exploitive and you're harsh and you're ruthless because uh, you forgot to bring God to work with you. 
or you forgot to bring God to the gym or to the supermarket or when you eat out God's with you your dishes at home God's with you but when you eat out He's not with you and I'm not I'm not being judgmental about any of those particular circumstances, we're all on a path, and I want to be clear, it's not an all-or-nothing path. We're all living a life, we're on a journey, and we're growing, and it's not all or nothing. So I don't mean to make light or to suggest that if you're not doing all, you might as well be doing nothing. But from an emuna perspective, from the perspective of seeing Hashem in your life, it's something, says Revolbi, that's all-encompassing. If you're married to Hashem, if you believe that there is a creator, a first cause, if you believe that He didn't make the world and move on, but He's involved in our lives, and that He always has our best interest in mind, then that's something which is all-encompassing. Yoser Often, we are distracted. Notice what happens. You go to an Amuna class, or when you were in seminary, or school, or in life, or maybe in Ne'ilah and Yom Kippur, oh, that was a, boy, was that amazing. You attended a kumzitz or a concert or a shir or something stirred your soul. We talked about nourishing the neshama. We care for the body, we pamper the body. Do we pamper and nourish the neshama? So in between our nourishing and nurturing the neshama, this thing called life gets in the way. Carpool and dinner and homework and having to pay the bills and having to take care of elderly parents and having to... There's no end to the things that get in the way. And they often serve as an enormous distraction. You don't see God when you're in traffic and you're late to carpool. You don't see God when someone you love's health is failing and you're their primary caretaker. You don't necessarily see God in these different circumstances. But a person who's a maimon, if, if you live a life of emunah and bitachon, then you don't look to discharge mitzvahs. Mitzvahs don't represent some spreadsheet or checklist that you can put, check, uh, Davin, got that, check, done, took the little Vanessa, check, let the candles, check, gave a little stuck a check. You don't mindlessly check off as if these are burdensome and you're just happy to be done with them. You know, before you deposit at the bank, you don't sit in the parking lot and say, L'shem yichud kuchubrichu, I want to make sure I have the right kavana that my money I'm depositing in the bank. No, you have some list of things you got to get done that day. You have your to-do list. I got to go to the bank, I got to do the dry cleaning, I got to do the... That's always the dry cleaning. It always comes back to the dry cleaning. I got to, I've got to do the shopping. I've got to cook for Shabbos. I've got to... And those actions don't necessarily require... I mean, I think that you'd live a much more mindful... It's a whole separate topic. It's the topic of my new book that is not yet even written, but somewhere deep in my head. But it's the notion how Judaism is a platform that has endorsed, endorsed mindfulness long before mindfulness was a popular term. The idea of being mindful in everything you do, from how you tie your shoelaces to how you fall asleep at night. But, but, so it would be a nice way of living, but it's an unfair expectation, right? You're not, you don't, as you walk into Publix and you grab the cart, okay, I'm mindful, kavana, I want to have the right kavana, so I'm going up and down the aisle. No, you're on the phone, you're talking to somebody, maybe you're listening to a shear, maybe you're, right, you're just going up and down the aisles, and you're, you're play, you know, you're, you could do it with your eyes closed, you could, if I gave you a pen and paper, you could probably draw the aisles of Publix by heart to me right now, right? It's mindless. But says Volbi, while that might be true with the to-do lists of life, that can't be true for the mitzvahs that we do, or for the meaningful things that we do. To, to live a life of amuna is to live a life of mindfulness. And it means that everything you're about to do, you actually pause for a moment and say, what's the deeper intent? What am I trying to accomplish? I'm about to eat something. What's this bracha? It's unbelievable. This is incredible. This is incredible that I have access to this great coffee, this delicious food, this... Once upon a time, you'd have to work in the field in order to 
break your back to plow and to plant and to harvest and to winnow and to crush and to grind and to knead. And finally, you'd get a piece of tasteless bread that would grow stale 15 minutes after you baked it. And today, you go to a supermarket and the shelves are stocked. And if there's anything that you're distracted by in the supermarket, it's that there's endless choices. And they're delicious. And they tempt you and distract you. Um, and they challenge you. So, emuna is to walk into every mitzvah we do. I'm about to light the Shabbos candles. What do candles represent? What does light mean? How am I dispelling darkness? How do I pray for my children? It's a moment to think about family. What are my hopes and dreams for my children? I'm about to give stuck. I'm about to daven. I'm about to drop off this meal at a shiva home or a new mother. I'm about to, whatever mitzvah I'm about to do, whatever interaction in life, to do it with kavana. And I will come back. I was talking to somebody recently who told me the Kabbalah they took on themselves. I wrote my article this week is about New Year's resolutions. Wishes versus resolutions. It may be familiar to you from Rosh Hashanah, but I adapted it for the New Year's. The difference between making a wish and making a real resolution. So someone told me their Kabbalah for this year was to not say Asher Yatsar walking, to stand still and saying Asher Yatsar. And it always comes back to Asher Yatsar. It's okay. So when you come out of the bathroom, this, was their, this is where their Kabbalah was. Right? It's one level of a Kabbalah that I'm going to say Asher Yatsar. It's another level of Kabbalah that you're not mumbling it while you're walking and like mindlessly... But someone said, I met a Kabbalah, I walk out of the bathroom, I stand there. It takes all of three, four seconds. How long does it take? So to actually stand there. So the point is that a person who's working on strengthening their amuna, this is part of their mindfulness all day long. How do I see Hashem in how I got that parking spot? How do I see Hashem in how it turned out I got the last can of the... Whatever, cranberry. How, how do I see Hashem in the fact that, you know, I took the route that didn't have the traffic? How do I see Hashem in that it turned out that X, Y, and Z? How do I see Hashem in everything that happens? Kol Amen, where the underline is, Kol Amen Shu Oneh. Every time you answer Amen, V'chobracha Shu Mevarech, and every bracha that you recite, Kol Mitzvah Shu Mekayim, every mitzvah you fulfill, Chodav Gemara Shu Hulomed, every learning that you do, Hakol Mekashar Osa Bekesher Amitz, if you see life as a platform, as a stage, that it's all there just to give you an opportunity to get closer to Hashem. So what was this traffic for? It was to challenge me to see Hashem and to be patient. And what, 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 are, what is Everything I do in my life is all a platform. It's an opportunity. There's no crisis. There's no emergencies. Everything are opportunities. If you transform your paradigm, that life is filled with opportunities to see Hashem. Every time someone makes a bracha, you're all drinking coffee. Everybody said a bracha out loud. From now on, this is our Amuna slash Amen group. When you drink the, the, uh, to drink the coffee, the rule is you get the coffee if you make a bracha. So to answer Amen, you know, we're having Rav Asher Weiss Shlita in a month. Rav Asher Weiss is one of the great rabbis of our time, one of the Gedoli Ador. He, he's an unbelievable Talmud Chacham. He's a very righteous person. I've had the privilege of developing a personal relationship with him. Um, a fascinating individual. So his father passed away recently. And his father was an uh, extraordinary person. 18 years old, he went into Auschwitz and uh, lost his whole family. And while there, he heard that in the next bunk was the Sanz Kleisenberger Rebbe. So he decided that if he's going to live in this hell, he wants to do it with a tzaddik. So in the middle of the night, he sneaks into the next bunk, which is at the risk of his own life. And he convinces someone to trade places with him. And he says, they took on each other's identity, each other's name, to live through the camps as the other, because otherwise they'd be killed for being in the wrong place. So he approaches the Kleisenberger Rebbe in the middle of the night, 18 years old, and he says to the Rebbe, I want to talk to you in learning. I want to talk to you about the Gemara, the Sugya of Mitzvah Srichos Kavana. 
The Rebbe says to him, the Rebbe had just lost his wife and 11 children. He had nobody. He was all alone. And he says to this boy, here, now, in this place? You want to talk about You're 18 years old. That's what you want to talk about? So Rav Moshe Weiss, is that how? Rav Asher's father said, yeah, we don't know how much longer we have to live. And Dafka here in this darkest hellhole in the world, what else should we be doing but talking and learning? So the Rebbe stayed all no- up all night talking with him and learning. And then they survived together and they were side by side for the next 50 years. He was the biggest chassid of the Rebbe. He was not a, ch- he was not a Kleisenberger chassid. He was Hungarian. And he became a Kleisenberger chassid from this, as, from this relationship. And he helped the Kleisenberger Rebbe rebuild a tremendous chassidus, which... Sons Kleisenberg, which was in Union City, New Jersey. And then the Rebbe moved to Netanya, Israel. And that's where Rav Moshe Weiss lived. And it was a huge time of Chacham, who loved learning. It's all, I could tell you the rest of the story, but I don't want to take up our time. Why am I telling you the story? Because there's an article in Mishpacha magazine about him, if you want to read about him. But they don't tell the following story in that article. Um, Rav Asher Weiss, who's this, his son, this great, unbelievable Tam Chacham, who's coming here for a Shabbos, January 30th. Um, so Rav Asher Weiss gave a hespit for his father. And I read the hesped he gave. And in the eulogy he gave for his father, he talked about how his father had such a muna, despite everything he had been through, and he so valued every amen. To him, answering amen was an opportunity to declare, to shout out, to scream, I have a muna. Despite everything in my life, I have a muna. So the boys in Netanya would line up in the morning on the way to Shul. Rav Moshe Weiss would stand outside and they would line up and recite Birchas HaShachar in front of him so he could answer Amin to every one of them. And that was the minute the children knew. You go by the old Rav Weiss on your way to Shul, you say Birchas HaShachar in front of him so he could answer Amin to every one of those brachas. So it changes the whole, like, Amin. You know, Amin is, ah, Amin. But Amin really means... Amin is Kel Melech Ne'eman. It's the Shorosh of Emuna. Every time you answer Amin, what you're screaming is, I have Amuna! Someone makes a shahakal, I have a muna. You hear someone say uh, a bracha, I have a muna. So we tend to mumble our brachas and we don't give other people the opportunity. Or we hear a bracha and maybe we mindlessly, if we're, if we're good, we answer amen, but mindlessly and quietly. But amen is an opportunity to say, oh, that's right, I'm working on a muna. That's right. It's also like I agree with what you're saying in your bracha. Correct. Amen literally, in that context, amen means like ditto. Ditto. You said, Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed as Hashem who brings the blessings into this world. Everything came to be with His speech. God is the source of everything. And amen means ditto. Absolutely. Amen is not, but the Gemara sees it as being from an acronym for Kel Melech Ne'eman. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, it does appear there. The Gemara praises, says somebody who answers Amen b'kol kocho. Remember, we, we actually studied that, I think, one of the first weeks, that a person who answers Amen b'kol kocho breaks down the gate to Gan Eden. You remember, Revolba said, what do you mean, pierces? usually you're promised Olam Haba. Why are you here promised the Gan Eden? That's not Olam Haba. And Revolba answered that Gan Eden was a place where you lived with no doubt that God exists. We live in the world of hiddenness. When you answer Amen, you're breaking down the barrier to Gan Eden. You get access to that world where God exists. Remember that was his beautiful, beautiful insight. Yes. And it was classes for women, but I have one of my children in particular. He's made, he makes a brother. Like, yeah. Don't forget, say Amen. I know you heard. Amazing. It. So I'm just wondering for him, for a child, how much of this do you give them that when you say Amen? You're really, you know, strengthening your amuna to Hashem. Do you get into that at all? A hundred percent. Absolutely. The earlier, the better. The earlier, you better. You can train children to say brachas out loud and to answer amen to each other and not to be mindless that, you know, you see one of your children is about to drink, say stop. They call the other kids. 
He's about to make a bracha. We're going to all answer. Let's go. We're going to answer Amen. We're going to thank Hashem. Look at this roof. Look at this house. Look at this life. Look at these gifts. Look at your clothing. Yeah? You think, he's, you think he or she's about to drink a cup of water? But we're going to answer Amen that we see Hashem in everything in our life. Again, I, I will admit that earlier in our married life or parenting life, I thought, like, this is for, like, flakes. This is for wackos. This is for weirdos. You know, who does that, you know? But now, I can't tell you how much I believe that the people who don't do that are graduating children who don't think God exists and they're going to college, they're not religious, they don't know if anything. The earlier we do it and ingrain in our children that it should be part of their mother's milk, it should be the, the they should drink, this is what nurtures and nourishes their neshama. The, the earlier we can teach them that they aren't a body that has a soul, they are a soul that has a body. Emunah, Hashem is involved in everything, in everything in their life. Did I tell you the SAT story with Rachel? I told you that story. I didn't tell that story. I told the Tamima story. Uh, my daughter took the SATs and uh, she had been taking tests and, and I reminded her the last time she took the SATs that she had been studying, she had been doing wonderful effort but the one thing that maybe could use a little more work was the morning of the SAT wake up a little early and have a real sincere davening and say to Hashem, I know that despite my greatest efforts and everything I've done in the end of the day it's up to you whether I ask the questions I know the answer to or whether I have the mindset or I get it right or everything like that so she did and Baruch Hashem she did very well so we actually had, on the last night of Hanukkah, we had a little family uh, night. We called it um, Amish night. Everyone, you weren't allowed to bring your technology. Everyone until we locked up. And, uh, we sat outside. We had a beautiful barbecue. We spent two hours together. I made a little fire pit in the back. And at one point, she came out, and she had her whole stack of SAT papers. And she stood next to the fire pit, and she said, I want to thank Hashem for allowing me and whatever and she took her big stack of SAT papers and she threw it and she threw it in the fire but she realized that not only do you have to ask Hashem beforehand because it's easy to do that right Hashem please and I need you and please and, I, and then you do then you, right and then you kill on the SAT you say, never mind God I, I nailed the SATs I'm good so to afterwards come back and say wow thank you Hashem that's unbelievable that worked out so we have to train we have to train our children Right, Revol Benam makes reference to what we just spoke about, how he earlier talked about the words of Chazal, that everyone who answers Amen, don't just blurt out an Amen, you think you're going to look like a wacko? Who cares? Amen! I have Amunah! The Devar Ambanal in Kolom Mitzvahs. Ach, Ketzat is Chazak Amunah, Yudelimud Gemara. But how can, how can you strengthen Amunah by learning? You go to the Parsha class, you go to Halacha class. We now have our women's midrashah, which we've barely been publicizing and yet is enormously successful. Amy Horowitz and now Gita Gutman have had wonderful turnouts and the women's midrashah is amazing. So you're sitting and learning and you could be learning some esoteric topic, you could be learning some dry topic, Halacha. And where do you get a muna in that? And here the Ramban gives us great insight. When the Ramban says, Revobim makes a reference elucidates the mitzvah of remembering what it was like to stand at Har Sinai. His here, The Torah warns us, do not forget the experience of Har Sinai. Never forget it. Never stop telling your children about it. And what are they, what's the Torah worried about? That lest we forget telling our children and grandchildren for generations to come. So you might erroneously conclude that what did the Pasuk mean? Don't forget what it was like to be at our Sinai. Tell your children and your children's children and everybody. You might think that means open the Gemara, open the Chumash, open the Mishnah Bura, open the whatever you're learning. 
How do you recall and remember and memorialize and concretize the experience of our Sinai? There's no greater way to do that than to learn Torah. But says the Ramban, that's not it. It's not just that. Of course that's it. Talmud Torah can get kulam. Of course we value Talmud Torah learning and it's of inestimable worth. But when the Torah cautions us, don't forget our Sinai, it doesn't just mean the content of Torah, it means the experience. Maimon Har Sinai remains the paradigm of revelation. It's the greatest revelation in history. God spoke to us directly. If you were at Har Sinai at that moment, you had zero doubt as to God's existence. You had absolute clarity. There was no room for uncertainty. And so when we continue to tap into that, what we're doing is we're drawing from the well of Amuna of Har Sinai. So you tell your children, children, come, I have to tell you a story. I wasn't there, but my great, 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 great Bubby and Zadie were there. And they told you, my, my parents who've told me, and I want to tell you what it was like to be at Har Sinai, and what it was like to hear Hashem's voice, and what it was like to have absolute clarity and to know with complete certainty that God created the world. He's created us to have a mission in this world, that this is His vision for the world. Says we learn a Gemara, every halacha in the Gemara, everything we learn is based on a pasuk or a tradition. So when we do learn halacha, if you learn Hilcha Shabbos, you're not just learning Hilcha Shabbos as if you're learning a random law book. It's not the same as opening an American law book or a British law book or a French law book. When you learn halacha, because halacha is all derived from from Ribbono Shalom himself, what you're essentially saying is, the halacha is the expression of God's will in this world. The halacha is the expression of God's expectation of this world. It's a whole other way of learning. So, for example, if you're learning Shnayim Ochsam Batalas, the beginning of Gemara Bab Metziah. By the way, the women's midrasha has women's Gemara learning with uh, Rabbi Simi Shabtai too, if you're interested in that experience. So, well, if you open Shnayim Ochs and Metalis, how does Bab Metziah begin? Shnayim Ochs and Metalis. Two men are holding a talis. Omer, this one says it's all mine, the other one says it's all mine. What do you do? They walk into a court, neither will let go. They're both holding half the talis. And each one claims it's theirs. And no one has any further evidence. There's no receipt, there's no invoice, there's no monogram, nobody has any other evidence. What do you do? So there's a big debate in the Gemara, Sumchus, Nechachamim, one says, Yachloku, you divide it in half. doesn't just mean you cut it in half, the garment. You sell it and you divide the proceeds because you can't determine who it belongs to. And there's other opinions who it belongs to. There's a whole halachic system. So there's two ways of learning that Gemara. You can learn that Mishnah, that Gemara, by, for example, as some like random law. Okay, what is this legal system? Let's use our human initiative. What would the human mind say the law should be? Or you could say that no. What the... Uh, what the, what the rabbis were trying to do was to discover, not to discover as much as to reveal, what is the Ribbonum, what is the Ribbonum Shalom's vision of how property works, property rights, of what's justice, of what's right, of what is equality, of what is just. So you could learn Gemara and, and erase God from the equation, and I think in too many yeshivas that happens, where it's intellectual gymnastics, and there's no reference to Hashem, or you could learn the Gemara, the way Rav Kook did, for example, in some of his farm, where in every Gemara that's about halacha, he's using as a platform to talk about emuna. Oh, it's so interesting. There's a thing on Shabbos about can you choose the blue jelly beans from the yellow jelly beans from the red jelly beans, borer. 
How do you choose your favorite jelly beans? You know, the three rules, miyad and biyad and no kli and so on. So you can learn that as, oh, we have these random minutia, weird rules that limit and restrict us on Shabbos in these bizarre ways. Or you could say, this reveals something about Hashem's view of what selecting is. Wow, selecting is a uniquely human activity, right? It's a malachas machshavas. Because the only activities that are prohibited on Shabbos, the lamatas malachos, the 13, 39 categories of forbidden labor, are not labor. You can walk to shul in Boca in July, and that's labor. Labor is not what's forbidden. It's creative labor that's forbidden, right? It takes no labor to turn on a light. It takes enormous labor to walk to shul in Boca in July, and yet you can walk to shul and you can't turn on a light. Why is that? Because it's not labor that's forbidden on Shabbos. It's creative labor. So it's called malachas machshavas. So wow, if Chazal say that selecting jelly beans is malachas machshavas, so that tells me something about what human creativity to select. Okay, well what does that tell me about being selective and filtering in life? And it's just a whole other way of learning Hilchah Shabbos. It's not just some random rules, it's trying to um, reveal and then apply God's vision for our world. Or put a little bit differently, and this is what Rav Sadan was saying, if you remember, Saddam was here a few weeks ago, the founder of the Mechina Neili, this incredible visionary who's transforming the educational system in Israel and, and, and the army in Israel. Um, so he, he had an oneg right around this table. The Friday night he was here with the Machan from the educators of our community. And this was really his emphasis, is that we're not teaching Amuna. We go through 12 years of Jewish education, and there's no curriculum of Amuna. Right at dinner that Friday night, I had him ask my children, and they had friends over, do you ever learn about Amuna in school? Yeah, well, we, get a, we have a hashkafa class where you're allowed to bring up anything you want. Once in a while, someone will ask a question about how do you know God exists. He says, nice, but do you have a class in Emunah? Do you learn the Kuzari or the Mornavuchim? Or do you learn Rav Kook? Or do you learn, do you have a curriculum? Do you learn Emuna? And the answer is our school system does not learn Emuna as a curriculum. And so some of the teachers pushed back and said, but we've got to get through Chumash and we've got to get through Navi and we have Ivrit and we have Gemara and Halacha. And we have a lot of curriculum we have to get through. Where are we supposed to do Emuna? So he had a great answer. He said, you could even approach everything you learn, you could approach with Amuna. So we're about to learn Chumash. How do we learn Chumash? We'll see what the Rashbam and the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban and the Orachayim and the Kliyakar say. But how do we have it as a discussion of Amuna? Okay, so this week's Pasha, Shmos. What do you think it was like for Yochebed and Amram? What kind of Amuna did it take to have Moshe? What was it like to put him in the Miriam and Yocheved to, to do what they did? They must have had tremendous amuna to be courage and bravery to defy Paro and, and uh, Moshe. What's the conversation with the Sneh? How, how can you extract amuna lessons from every Pasuk in all of Chumash, from all the stories of Navi? So it's how you orient the conversation. You can orient everything you learn as looking for the halacha conclusion. You could orient everything you learn as looking for the whatever agenda. Or you can orient everything you learn with your agenda of emuna, So that a kid goes through 12 years of school and every Chumash and Navi and Gemara and Mishnah and Halacha, the bottom line of everything they had was, where do you see Hashem in that? What does that show about what Hashem wants from us in that? What is Hashem's expectation? What's our mission that Hashem wants us to do based on what we just learned? It's an entirely different orientation of learning. I'm a Malshiva for many, many years, but I just remember when I was learning and it was always questions about 
um, you know, what are your thoughts on this person on the tour or whatever. Like, there was a lot of room for discussion. So when my children started going to school here, or in, you know, religious you know, school wherever they were, I didn't understand that what component was missing. Right. And so why is it the Balchula yeshivas, or there's a lot of, you know, thinking and... Because we have, a, I mean, this, now is not the time, but we have, and, and I'm not an expert in saying this, but we have a very rigid system which nobody has the courage to break. You've got to get through certain curriculum in the elementary school in order to get into the high school. And the high school has to cover certain curriculum to be able to get into the schools in Israel. And the schools in Israel have to cover certain curriculum if you want to succeed in Stern or whatever. So no one's willing to break the mold and say, we don't really care about your curriculum and expectations. We're going to do what's right for children because we need to revamp the system. It would take enormous courage. Not only would it take enormous courage, then you'd have to worry that you know, the local newspaper or the local rabbi is going to shun you because you have changed the tradition of the curriculum and you're doing less of this and more of that and that's not the way we always did it. And who are you to radically do something like that? So I, I think it can be done. I think a number of schools have to collaborate and have the courage to do it together. I think it should be done with the consent and the support and the endorsement of our leading rabbanim who can guide how it should be done. And this is what Rev. Sadan is trying to do in Israel, is to try to... And we have wonderful schools. I don't want anyone, particularly if you're listening to this online, to think that in Boca we're struggling. Our schools are incredible. Our teachers are selfless, devoted, amazing role models. This is not a Boca issue. This is across the board. There's no... I mean, I, I went to schools my whole life in New York. If I ever did, I'm sure many of us went in different places. And, uh, and this is, I think, a, a universal challenge. So coming back here to Revolbi. So what Revolbi is saying is that this was the original intent... When the Torah says, don't ever forget what it was like standing at Harsinai. And tell your children and your grandchildren. What the Torah, what the, according to the Ramban, what, what the Torah is telling us is, don't forget to teach your children when you're teaching them Torah, that the Torah is Dvar Hashem. The Torah is not some book, not some random set of law, it's not some intellectual gymnastics, that it all needs to trace back to reinforcing that it's Dvar Hashem. That's the whole thing. This is Gemara Brachos. He continues with teach your children and your grandchildren. And it says afterwards, What are you supposed to teach them? It doesn't say It doesn't say Mishnah. What are you supposed to teach your children? Torah says, what are you supposed to teach them? The day that you stood before God at Har Sinai. Just like in the original story. We stood there with a sense of awe and reverence and trembling and goosebumps. Afkan be'ema be'yira be'reses u'vazeya. It's a halacha. When you learn Torah, you're supposed to do so with a certain sense of awe and reverence. There, there are halachas that guide that. You're not supposed to learn Torah dressed improperly. You're not supposed to learn Torah casually or comfortably or in the wrong setting. You can't learn Torah in the bathroom or if there's a bad odor. You can't learn Torah without a head covered. You can't learn Torah... All of these conditions and criteria for learning Torah are to recreate Harsinai. Every time you sit and learn Torah, you are being transported back to Harsinai. That's the goal of learning Torah. To transport you back as if you're standing at the base of the mountain with awe and with goosebumps and with reverence and with the clarity that Hashem exists with no doubt and that my job is to understand His expectation for me in this world and to execute on it. And when you learn Torah, you see that this was the attitude that the rabbis had. And we too need to have a greater sense of awe and reverence when we're learning Torah. It should be transformative. It should elevate us. It should transport us. Because 
Kazel, Mishpat Vartoro, Mishpat Limana Torah. Rabbein Agon, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, Zechet Tzadik, Kodesh Lebracha, Belomda HaMishnah Rishonah, Baba Metziah. Ah, I didn't even look at this. Ah, look at that. When Rabbi Yisrael Salanter learned the opening mission in Baba Metziah, Shnayim Ochs and Metalos, two people are holding on to a coat. Zeomer Animetzasiah, each one says, I found it. Omer Habore Olam, Yachloku. Isn't that great? Rabbi Yisrael Salanter would add into the Mishnah, every time the Mishnah gives its conclusion, two people come into court both holding a garment. This one says, I found it and belongs to me. This one says, I found it and belongs to me. The way our Mishnah appears, it says, Yachloku. They divide it. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, when he learned the Mishnah, would say, Omer Habore Olam, Yachloku. What does God say is the right thing to do? Divide it. There's an example of introducing Amuna into learning Gemara. In everything you're doing, use that learning to say, Okay, someone gives a Dvar Torah at the table. You come, your, your child comes home with the Parsha sheet. Hopefully it uses words they can understand and they know what it says, not just their ability to read it. So they read the Parsha sheet. Say afterwards, say in your own words, what does that mean? Where did you see Hashem in that? What does that mean about Hashem? Sorry, I just read that. So what Revolb is trying to say here is that every experience and every exercise of Torah learning should also be an experience of Amunah of working out the Amunah muscle. A person is working hard to strengthen their Amunah. And they approach learning Torah with this agenda. They approach learning Torah with this interest. Where can I work on my Amunah through whatever I'm about to learn? Whatever I'm about to learn, a person who does that, Kiflayim Yikne. They will exponentially, they will double their acquiring a sense of emuna. Okay, so what we saw this week is that emuna is all-encompassing. It's not something which is casual. It's not something which is temporary. It's not something that we do only at times. If we're trying to work on and live a life of emuna, then it's something like marriage, which is permanent, like our responsibility as parents, which is permanent. Um, it's not something that you could ever take a vacation, that you could take a vacation from, that we can declare our working on Amuna. Every time we answer Amen, it's an opportunity to remind ourselves we're working on Amuna and to proclaim, I, I believe, Amuna. And then mostly what we saw was this Ramban. That the Ramban is saying that perhaps the greatest place to strengthen Amuna is total learning. Whatever you're reading, whatever you're learning, whatever you're studying, to not use it just to exercise your brain, but to exercise your Amuna muscle. Where do I see Hashem in that? What does that mean about how Hashem wants me to operate in this world? What does this reveal about Hashem's vision for His world? And that's what it means to never forget the experience of Har Sinai. This is one of the Shesh Zechiros, one of the six things you have to remember every day, is what it was like to stand at Har Sinai. It's what obligation. Never forget. Teach it to the next generation and to the generations to come. And what is that mitzvah says the Ramban? Not just teaching them Torah content, but teaching them that all that Torah content takes you back to HaKadosh Baruch This is the Dvar Hashem. It reveals God's will and that we see Hashem in everything. Like Rav Yisrael Salanter, insert into every Dvar Torah, Omer Aboreolam, God says, this is what should happen. God says, take the yellow jelly beans from the blue jelly beans. God says, you can't wear the wool and linen. God says, that you have to divide it. God says, this is the ethical thing to do in this circumstance. Have a fantastic, wonderful day.